0: KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: Here we go. Another week of Political Rewind with lots of news that we're going to be looking at uh, throughout the week. Um I realized this morning I'm beginning the 14th week of doing this show, Sheltering in Place, from the spare bedroom that I share with where our dogs sleep at our house just outside the city of Decatur, and all of our panelists continue uh, to do the show by phone from wherever they are sheltering in place. And, you know, it's working out pretty well, so I don't have a lot of complaints about the way we've been doing the show. And thank goodness uh, you out there don't seem to have Many complaints either. I, I, once again, I enjoy getting your emails. I spent some time this weekend responding uh, to your comments about the show, to your telling me what life is like for you during the pandemic, uh, and I encourage you to continue to uh, write me. I do try to get back to everybody as soon as I can, uh, and I, I really do enjoy hearing from you. The one thing I do have to say is I'm not very good at answering a lot of questions you ask. You ask me sometimes questions about specific aspects of what's happening with uh, uh, how the how the Secretary of State is handling this aspect of absentee balloting, or what's happened to your ballot, and that I've got to be honest, I'm not great at answering those questions. You can keep asking them, but I'm not going to be the best source of uh, answers for specific questions about what's going on out there. All right, we've got a great show lined up uh, today. Last week, the Trump administration uh, found itself in what I think the president probably thought, was a surprising position in which uh, the court ruled against his administration on two key cases, and we're going to talk about those cases uh, today with a great panel of people with uh, legal expertise. Um, Professor Amy Steigerwald, who you know is a regular on our show, is with us We we always introduce Amy as a professor of political science at Georgia State University, which, of course, she is. But she does much of her research is focused on the federal uh, judiciary, the roles of courts as institutions, the influences on decision making uh, that courts, uh, the federal courts deal with. So, uh, Amy Steiger, well, you're well positioned to talk about these subjects, and I'm glad you're here today. Thank you for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Sure. Another one of our regulars, Charles Cook, is almost always cited as one of the uh, most influential and top immigration attorneys in certainly the Southeast, if not the United States. We always like having you on the show, Chuck, and obviously we're going to talk about the DACA ruling, so I'm especially interested in hearing you uh, talk about that, but, but I also know you'll be able to talk about Title Seven in the show, too. How are you doing, Chuck? I'm doing great. Thanks Thanks for asking Bill. It was certainly a great weekend, I can tell you that. Oh, good. Well, happy belated Father's Day, I guess I should say to you. <laughs> uh, we're joined today, too, by uh, Fred Smith, Jr. He is an associate professor and in the Emory University School of Law. And uh, we're really glad to have you here, Fred, uh, because your expertise is on the fed- federal judiciary. You're a constitutional law uh, a scholar, and uh, we should point out that just last year, you were named uh, Emory Law School's Outstanding Professor of the Year. And you're still a young guy, Fred. That's quite an honor. Congratulations. How, thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor. Let's, um, let's, it, let's talk DACA as a starting point, if we can uh, today. And, and Chuck, because you're the immigration attorney, I'm going to let you have the first crack at this and then give everybody a chance to jump in. J- just to set the table, uh, the Trump administration, Jeff Sessions, at, when he was attorney general, uh, decided that he was going to end uh, DACA, Deferred Action for Children, Childhood Arrivals. Um, he was going to do it he he uh, he said that the uh, Obama administration had put DACA in place illegally to begin with, and so Sessions was going to lead the way in uh, the administration's uh, decision to end the program outright. The Supreme Court uh, it, it it obviously was challenged. The Supreme Court heard arguments. Uh, yeah, I think the case is uh, Department of Homeland Security versus the Regents of the California University System as I recall, right. Chuck, and enough, the court, yeah, okay, the court <laughs> on a ruling of five to four said that the Trump administration did not choose the right path and could not end the program as it now exists, which seems to have stunned President Trump. Chuck, weigh in first, talk just a little bit about this, and then, and then Amy and Fred, you jumped in.
2: Well, I I love how you presented that, Bill, because it immediately recalled to mind uh, uh, the movie uh, involving the Holy Grail and uh, Indiana Jones, uh, where the ancient (laughs) knight says, you have not chosen wisely. Um, The the decision was really interesting in this. Um, First of all, let's look at a little bit of the history. Sessions wanted to get rid of the program. It's why he wanted to be attorney general, among other things. But he did not end the program. He wrote a, a memo to the DHS secretary, who then ended the program, uh, because the program was created by the DHS secretary, not by executive order. Um, and the decision is really interesting by Chief Justice Roberts, uh, because it goes really to the issue of why, uh, how, how a president or how an executive branch individual can create options within the law that already exists. Uh, and unlike the dissents, uh, and there were several of them, uh, where they simply said it's illegal, it doesn't matter how you get rid of it, the whole program is illegal, uh, Justice Roberts took a completely different tack on that and said, you know, uh, I'm not going to get into whether it's legal or illegal or, uh, or not legal to do this, but people have relied on this decision. And your choice to get rid of the program whole cloth did not follow the rules. So when the program was created, it was created by basically an order coming from the DHS secretary, but subsequently, they also went through the Federal Register process, the Administrative Procedures Act, and created an employment authorization document through the APA. Once you involve yourself in the APA, the Administrative Procedures Act, the only way to get out of a regulation is to follow the Administrative Procedures Act, and that's exactly what they did not do. And interestingly enough, it's also the same reason that Obama lost the DAPA program that he he tried to create a couple years after DACA for parents because he did not go through the APA. Uh, The APA is a very powerful piece of legislation uh, that uh, I think stymies a lot of presidents who think they can just do stuff by fiat. Uh, But it was a great decision, and it was a great decision not because it was a stunning decision, but because it was a right decision to do and the right side of history. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that DACA is not going to be eliminated. The president's already come out and said, I'm getting rid of DACA uh, on Monday, and who knows whether he is or not. But all they really have to do is go through the administrative procedural process, publish a notice in the Federal Register, account for the reliance of a million young men and women on the program in their lives, talk about how that's going to be affected and why it's better to get rid of the program. Um, but for the... 75,000 young men and women who could have applied for the last three years who can now apply for DACA, uh, that's fantastic. For the 700,000 or so that have DACA, they can renew their DACA one more time for two more years. So it's, it's a great overall
1: decision. Amy, let's be clear about something here. Uh, in no way did the court say uh, that they were ruling on whether DACA was in, uh, uh, was legal to begin with, what they said was. And, and in fact, they did, as Chuck points out, keep the door open for the administration to come back and, uh, and, and in, in a uh, responsible way, in a legal way, argue why DACA should be eliminated. And that's what the court really decided and what Roberts joined the majority on, which is the administration essentially, in terms of the Administrative Procedures Act— did not provide a valid reason or or set of reasons as to why the program should now be overturned. There seems to be widespread agreement that uh, the Obama decision to do this is vulnerable. Go ahead, Amy.
0: Yes. So, number one, we should make clear that number that executive orders of the president can, in fact, be overturned by succeeding presidents. Where this one became a little more complicated, with as Chuck pointed to, was that it also um, amended certain procedures about employment and other of those that followed the APA, which then brought us into it, as well as where Robert sort um, of talked about of why it is that the court could look at the decision in the first place was that this was really a... Um, a program that was created, and so at that point to stop the program itself, not just non-enforcement, but to in fact get rid of it, is the type of thing that they're allowed to look into That of decisions that agencies are making. And so on that, I think it's important to emphasize that this is the exact same ruling that the court handed down in the census case. Remember, that was the one where the Trump administration had wanted to add to the 2020 census a question asking about citizenship. And in the same way, the court didn't rule on should there be a question about citizenship or can you add it. Instead, the question was, did you follow the process for wanting to do this? And in the exact same way, they said no. The APA is a detailed but, to be perfectly blunt, non-complicated statute to follow. It has steps that you have to do. It takes a little bit more time than they may have wanted to, but it's not hard to follow. And what happened here was that the administration want, didn't want to have to follow that. They didn't want to get into a discussion about reliance. They didn't want there to be a public comment, period, and to see what type of things would come up. And the problem is, is you simply can't do that. The Administrative Procedures Act was put into place to try to curtail precisely
1: these types of executive action. Fred, I'd love to get your general take and and, and and give you a chance to do that now. I'm going to add a layer, if you don't mind. Amy just said something I think this is significant here. There are those who believe that the reason the administration didn't more correctly follow the Administrative Procedures Act is that they really didn't want to be on the record Uh, saying, yeah, we're getting rid of DACA, we've got all the legal arguments for doing it, that what they really wanted was for the court to do the work for them so that the Trump administration could say, not us, blame the courts for this. But please uh, comment on any aspect of this you want, but I'd love for you to add that to what you have to say.
3: Sure, right? So I don't know if that's why... The administration did what they did, right? Because I'm not, I'm not there. Uh, Absolutely, I couldn't say, right? <laughs> um, but, uh, but I can say that that is why we sort of the procedure act. That's in part why it's in place, right? Um, it's to foster levels of democratic accountability through uh, some degree of transparency, right? So um, that's why there is an opportunity for notice and comment. Um, that's why there has to be a response. Um, from uh, the administration with respect to why they are rejecting different aspects uh, or you know, uh, significant themes that are coming up in the uh, public comment period. Um, because if uh, they have to say so, um, then the general electorate can make decisions based on that set of reasoning, right? And so, um, and so that's, that's precisely why it is uh, important. Um, and here there were opportunities for the administration to, um, to in fact, do this. Um, and I, I'll reiterate um, that, yes, this does have some similarities to um, the census case. It's a bit softer um, in the sense that the census case, uh, the Chief Justice said that the, that the reasons that were being given were pretexts, right, um, that they just, they, they were made up. Uh, uh, and so th- this is a little less sharp than that. Um, you know, he, he implies that there is some, uh, potential ability for uh, the administration to do this the right way. Um, but, uh, but to your point about democratic accountability and transparency, um, that's absolutely a, a big part of why we have the APA in place. And it's also to keep different administrations from just kind of, um, undoing the work too quickly <laughs> of the one before, uh, because from a reliance standpoint, um, uh, it would kind of give us whiplash um, if the law was constantly changing uh, every time there was a new administration.
1: Chuck, um, I want to go to something. The, the um, One of the things that was interesting is that uh, whether they were in the minority or the majority on this case, eight of the nine justices said they did not believe that the Trump administration's effort to end DACA was based on prejudice, uh, on uh, 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 discrimination in any form. Justice Sotomayor did not agree with that. Sotomayor said this. She said, although the Roberts opinion, quote, brushes aside statements by the president describing Mexican immigrants as criminals, drug dealers, and rapists, those statements bear On unlawful migration from Mexico, a keystone of President Trump's campaign and a policy priority of his administration, and according to the challengers, were an animating force behind the rescission of DACA. Taken together, Sotomayor concluded, the president's statements helped to create the strong perception that this decision to end DACA was motivated by an intent to discriminate. Chuck?
2: Yeah, I I don't think that position was ever going to be adopted by a majority of the justices, uh, even even among the court's liberal wing, and certainly not Justice uh, Roberts. Uh, But there's a lot of interesting things about the revocation of DACA. Um, Probably one of the ones that's really interesting to me is that he didn't do it in January of 2017. Uh, He waited all the way until September. There was a lot of pressure on him from the business community, especially not to revoke DACA because so many young men and women are involved in in so many different areas of our economy and become a strategic part of the American workforce. Um, But at the end of the day, uh, it's going to go back to the courts, the lower courts now, and uh, when the president, if he decides to really get rid of DACA uh, and publishes the, the, regu- the, uh, the, the notice in the Federal Register, uh, it's probably safe, DACA recipients are probably safe at least through the end of, uh, at least till after the election uh, this year. But I, I, I did, Tom, I want to talk, talk about this bill more than anything else. The people impacted by this, the, re- the response I got to some Facebook Lives and emails from kids, there was literally tears of joy kids that didn't dare hope for the opportunity to remain here with, a, with, a, with work status, to stay in school, to continue serving their communities, uh, to continue pursuing their dreams, they thought it was all over on Monday when that, when that opinion came out. And as they read it, uh, just the expression on their face, the, the joy, uh, I have to tell you, it, it, that more than anything else is the power of DACA, because it restores hope to young men and women. And I think the vast majority of Americans get this, too. On a poll that came out last week, 75% of Americans, including like 72% of Republicans who support Trump, support the DACA program. Um, and so, you know, ending the program, okay, you've ended for whatever political reason you want to. It's not because Americans want this program ended. And at the end of the day, the only way really going to solve this problem is for Congress to act. And the DREAM Act is sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk. The bill that gives every one of these kids a path to legality and a green card has been sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk since, since June 5, 2019. And that's what needs to happen now for these kids. We really want to get a solution and really stop holding these kids hostage.
0: No, I think Chuck brings up a good point, because there is this question of kicking it to Congress. And so we, you know, people might also remember that sort of in 2018, early 2019, there was, in fact, a big uh, debate that was going on on Congress. There were meetings at the White House. They were coming in. And part of what had happened is actually the House and the Senate had reached an agreement. They had come up with a plan and then when they went to go present it to the president, he said he would not sign on to it. And so that is part of why we saw the DREAM Act pass the House and then stall in the Senate, is that those negotiations were upended, um, because I think the president is sort of stuck in between this idea that he is not a fan of immigration, Um, the Recent action suggest that he's actually not in favor of legal immigration either, because um, certainly the numbers of that have been brought down, the numbers of refugees and asylum cases, but also um, supposedly there's going to be an executive order out later today that is limiting um, work visas, potentially student visas and things like that. And so that does, I think, go part and parcel into these debates and some of the broader issues that we've seen, and also the fact that we have— the Senate in particular right now is wary of passing anything that the president has not affirmatively approved. They very clearly don't want to either force his hand um, on a veto or even maybe um, acquiescing to something that they disagree with. They very much so don't want to do veto overrides. And so what that's led to is really kind of this like a real legislative gridlock where the Senate is doing very little other than very rapidly confirming nominees to the federal judiciary. And so I think we're seeing some of that tension because DACA could have been solved. In fact, it could have been solved well before a lot of these um, cases were even filed as everyone was waiting for it, and they were really only filed after it became clear that there was not going to be congressional action.
1: Fred, um, the president was apparently, as we I said at the very beginning, surprised by these two decisions, uh, in part because, and we'll talk about the uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act decision in a couple of minutes, but In that case, uh, one of the justices he supported, Justice Gorsuch, went against him. But just before we get to that specific case, just in a more general way, uh, both of these decisions uh, seem to me to do two things. One, they tell us just how important Justice Roberts, the chief justice is, in being capable of being a swing voter on some crucial cases. We've seen that before. Uh, And secondary to that... Uh, that presidents can never quite depend on the ideology of the justices they uh, name to the court uh, to do the thing that the president hopes. It's they—they're always in for these surprises. The president, Fred, tweeted this last week. Do you get the feeling the Supreme Court doesn't like me, Fred? <laughs>
3: yeah, that, that was a remarkable tweet. Although I guess in the in the great. Uh, it's a great list of Trump tweets. I don't know where that ranks. Uh, it may not even register, but I certainly noticed it. Um, and during his uh, his rally the other night, um, there was a moment. I mean, there, there were so many lines in that that I don't know that this one got a whole lot of play. But there was a line where he said, "Gosh, it, you know, it feels like this." Is, like basically, he said, "It feels like we're in the minority uh, at the Supreme Court." Right? The way he worded it was, um, "It feels like you know, it feels like we're a minority court." Um, and so he kind of. Um, uh, he's walking a fine line because he, uh, he, you know, his part of the whole idea here is that the Supreme Court is important. Uh, so elect him because uh, he will be able to put forward, um, you know, more conservative justices and so forth. And, uh, and so um, and at the same time, right, he's critiquing at least one of the justices who he uh, appointed. Um, more broadly, to your point, right? Uh, yes, presidents can't always um ensure that their nominees are going to do exactly what they expect them to do um, they've gotten much better at it right so you know i mean one of the things that the president has said is that he will put together another list of 25 people um, and ensure that anyone he nominates comes from that 25 people um, and you know those 25 people presumably will have been well vetted by a conservative organizations like the federalist society and so Um, They certainly have gotten um, uh, more precise with it um, than they have in the past. But, you know, uh, Justice Stevens, uh, who was one of the most liberal members of the court, um, was appointed by a Republican. Uh, Of course, Justice Souter uh, was appointed by uh, President George H.W. Bush um, and turned out to be a fairly consistent member of the liberal wing uh, of the court. Um, and so uh, one can't always necessarily predict exactly what, uh, what a justice um, is going to do um, because they have different uh, – first, they have a different job, which is interpreting the law. Uh, but second, um, in terms of the political economy of the various branches, um, you know, they're thinking about different things. So, so the, the chief justice is thinking about – in addition to the law, he's thinking about the long haul. He's thinking about the long-term legitimacy of the institution. And frankly, the Supreme Court, it, it's had a rough year. Um, there uh, was a death penalty case out of Alabama that drew a lot of criticism very early in the year. And then much more recently, um, the voting rights decision. Um, that uh, required people to vote in Wisconsin, and the images of people standing in line and so forth. Um, you know, that, those those were not great moments. Um, and so, to the extent that they're thinking about the long term legitimacy of the institution, um, I'm not saying that's why he did what he did, but um, but I think it was helpful for the for the longer term legitimacy of the court for to, to show that. Um, it's not just a 5-4 court where the liberals will always line up with any liberal opinion and the conservatives will always line up with any conservative opinion. Um, and I think that's important that people know that uh, there's
1: a lot more to it than that. Amy, let me give you the last word before we got to get to a break.
0: Well, I was just going to say on exactly the point that um, Fred was ending on, um, there's a book called "Puzzles of Unanimity, which I – will say myself since I helped write it, that it's really quite good. And one of the points that we really make in this book in looking at really all the decisions um, of the court back from 1953 to today is one of the most prevalent myths is the idea that the court is always handing down these opinions that are divided along ideological lines. And that's actually not true. The vast majority of the court's decisions are actually unanimous. They agree. And at least the argument that we put forth is it's because many times there's simply one possible legal answer. It doesn't matter what your ideology is. In fact, there's really not room for these partisan divides to come in. There's a single legal answer. And I think that's what we're seeing in a lot of these decisions. And we're seeing the fact that there's not these sort of the divides on the court don't work the way that we think of them in partisan politics, especially because – Their question that they're answering is not, is it good policy? It's, is it legal? Did you follow the process? Is it constitutional? And that's a very different determination and why we get so many unanimous decisions.
1: Uh, I got to get to a break, Chuck, very quickly before I do. How many DACA recipients do we think there are in the state of Georgia who are going to benefit, at least for the time being, before there's another action taken in court on DACA?
2: going to be about 25,000 or so that we will be able to apply anew or to renew their DACAs.
1: So these are the people who, when you talked a little while ago, for whom this is a very, we can talk about the legalities of all this, the mechanics of the court, but for these, for these young people, this is an incredibly emotional moment.
2: Exactly right. And it's, it's a great, it was a great weekend for them.
1: All right, let's do this. Let's take our first break. We'll come back talk more about the Supreme Court uh, on Political Rewind.
2: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else.
1: Quick program note before we continue our conversation: the, uh, the hate crimes bill in the Georgia legislature. They had a weekend session, and it the, the debates got very, very heated, very passionate uh, disagreements over the measure. Tomorrow on the show, uh, Andrea Young, the uh, director of Georgia ACLU, will join us to talk about ACLU's position on the bill, and uh, that should be a really fascinating conversation. Uh, Today, we're joined by Professor Fred Smith, uh, Emory University School of Law, uh, Amy Steigerwald, political science professor, but but also um, uh, someone who's written extensively and researched extensively on the federal courts in addition to her political uh, work that you're more familiar with hearing her talk about on the show, and Charles Cook, one of the top immigration attorneys uh, in the Southeast and somebody we always enjoy having on. Um, Fred Smith, just as a starting point, we're going to talk about the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act in a second. But in terms of President Trump, I've found another tweet that he put out in response to both DACA and the Title VII decision last week, which also went against him. He said that both of those decisions were, quote, shotgun blasts into the face of people that are proud to call themselves Republicans or conservatives, Fred. Obviously, aside, the president expects the court to do his bidding. <laughs> but then again, so do all presidents. We shouldn't hold that against Trump.
3: Yeah, but those are—I mean, those are those are shocking words—and um, just uh, in my view, um, yeah, I'm, 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 I know the in a in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, living in the world that we live in, seeing the political violence that we've seen, and so forth. Um, I think that particular language choice um, is uh, it, it escalates the rhetoric, and um, it's at peace with the retweet from a couple of weeks ago, where he said that, uh, where he retweeted a speech that said the only good Democrat is a is a dead Democrat. Um, you know, so I, I do think that when yeah. the when the rhetoric kind of goes in this violent direction, that we should we should isolate it and recognize it as as different than um, you know sort of the earlier tweet that you mentioned. Um, but uh, but yes, yeah, so, you know the, the Title Seven cases. Title Seven uh, statute passed in 1964. Uh, it was passed during a political climate um, that, uh, in some ways, perhaps resembles today, uh, in the sense that there have been um, years of uh, of protests and direct action, most notably the March on Washington in 1963. Um, and uh, so, in 1964, uh, you get uh, Title Seven, which, uh, among other things bans discrimination in employment um, on the basis of race, sex, uh, national origin, color, religion. And um, the uh, section with respect to sex, um, It's understood, that was not a, initially a part of the bill. It was kind of uh, put in at the last minute, potentially um, by some historical accounts um, as uh, expected to be sort of a poison pill um, with respect to the bill. Um, but it passed. Uh, so it ended up including um, race and sex. Um, over the past few decades, uh, every appellate court to consider the issue has concluded that uh, that this includes discrimination on the basis of kind of gender presentation, uh, which would include, among other people, uh, trans folks—people who are, are transgender. Um, and the idea goes that ultimately, if you're discriminating against someone because they are transgender or because they're wearing a dress or what, what have you, then essentially what you're doing is um, you are, um, you know, but for that person's biological sex, you would not impose these particular requirements on them, right? So, um, so, you, so in a sense, you're treating them differently because of their sex, right? Um, so, if you fire someone, you fire someone, and you say, well, your biological sex is male but this is how this is how you're supposed to dress um, then that is discrimination because of sex um the supreme court has also in the past uh most uh first in a case called price waterhouse coopers um later in a case called Ancale, the court has said that gender stereotyping um violates uh, title seven in price waterhouse you had a case where uh, the, uh someone wasn't promoted um a woman wasn't promoted and, uh, the partner said it was because she needed to dress like a woman and she needed, she needed to wear ma- more makeup and she needed to be less of a um, fill in a, um, a pejorative. Um, and the Supreme Court in the 1980s was like, yeah, of course that's, uh, of course that's discrimination on the basis of sex. Um, and so, you know, fast forward, uh, what the court did last week uh, is it applied those same principles uh, again to trans folks and also to people on the basis of sexual orientation. Um, and just quickly, the argument with respect to sexual orientation, right? It goes something like, you know, uh, if Jill is discriminated against for marrying and liking Jane, um, and John wouldn't be discriminated against for marrying or liking Jane, um, then uh, that is sex discrimination, right? Because but for uh, Jill's sex, um, she wouldn't. Be fired, right? And so, um, the court, just from a purely textualist standpoint, and based on uh, really a great deal of precedent, both in the Supreme Court and from appellate courts around the country, um, concluded that this was discrimination on the basis of sex.
1: Amy, let's be clear. Uh, Fred just laid it out very well for us. Uh, let's say that again: Justice Gorsuch, an appointee by President Trump, who Trump expected to be on his side on cases like this. Justice Gorsuch essentially said uh, – the reason he went with the majority who said that, that, yes, LGBTQ people are protected by Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. He said essentially it's just – he ruled that way because it's a necessary consequence of the vague language and broad language that was applied in the 1964 uh, Civil Rights Act in terms of sex – some would argue that when they said sex, what they meant was gender. You can't discriminate against women, particularly. Uh, Gorsuch essentially said it was overly broad. I can't, uh, I can't go along with those who say that LGBTQ people shouldn't be protected. Um, and then Alito went the other direction. In his opinion, he said nothing in Title Seven says anything about sexual orientation or gender identity, so he ruled the other way. But it's one way or the other. This is a huge victory, again, this for the LGBTQ community, Amy.
0: It is. So one of the things that I was struck by, and we were discussing right before, is that in some ways it is not a totally surprising decision, and it's also, I would argue, not totally surprising also that Gorsuch signed on to it, because it really is a sort of simple extension of the decision in Oncali that uh, Fred was talking about, which was a unanimous decision co-authored by Justice Scalia. And in fact, Scalia said this in part of the decision. He said, statutory prohibitions often go beyond the principal evil to cover reasonably comparable evils and is ultimately the provisions of our laws rather than the principal concerns of our legislators legislators by which we are governed. And in many ways, Gorsuch was simply extending that reasoning and saying the same thing. The Alito decision, I will say, is interesting. Um, Probably the most striking part of the Alito decision is where at one point he starts, he says that you do not see other terms coming after the word sexual, and one of them that he mentions explicitly is that the law—he says the law doesn't—wouldn't cover sexual harassment. That's somewhat surprising, given that the court in 1986, in a case called Marriage or Savings Bank, said explicitly— that Title VII covers <laughs> sexual harassment. Um, and so that part of his decision was really sort of striking and that he also really wouldn't didn't acknowledge on collie which again sort of set this up. And so it's, it's actually less of a surprising decision than we have seen, particularly if one reads on collie and sees how um, Scalia really sets it up to say that if in fact you're engaging in these sex stereotypes, then that's because of sex, right? It really—this isn't a question of whether or not he was gay or not, right? It's not about sexual orientation. It's about the fact that it is, as Fred was laying out, because of sex, and we would treat someone, right? We would treat Jill differently if, in fact, Jill was Jim.
1: Um, We, Chuck, by the way, we should point out that one of the three litigants in the case that the court decided was Gerald Bostick, an Atlanta man who— Claimed to have been fired by the juvenile court of uh, Clayton County when they discovered that he was uh, 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 gay. So there's a very specific Georgia uh, 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 peg to this story, Chuck.
2: Well, it discovered he was gay because he was playing in a softball league uh, that had gay gay people in it. It's just an interesting reason to terminate somebody. This decision did not surprise me at all. Uh, I. I think that a lot of conservatives do not understand what textualism actually means. And these judges um, who are nominated because of their conservative leanings are viewed as conservative because they tend to interpret the statutes that they read by what they say. And now they're shocked that an interpretation has come along that a judge has made that the word sex means exactly what it says it means. Um, This was completely in line. Uh, with Scalia's thinking, uh, with Gorsuch's thinking, uh, and I think you're going to see a lot more of this in the, in the years to come, that Gorsuch will remain very true. He clearly doesn't care about politics at this point. Um, and so if if a word means what it says, he's just going to say that regardless of how it comes out in the context of politics. Uh, in some ways, it's very refreshing, but it also points out the need to have representatives and senators in Congress that write precise legislation, uh, that they write things that mean what they say, which is exactly the opposite of what politicians tend to do. They want the courts to read into things, and you know the more more textualists that you get on the Supreme Court, the less likely that things will be read into uh, in the context um, i mean i 'll bring this back to immigration for a second because immigration law is very specific in fact, in the dissent. Uh, of the DACA case, Justice Thomas says it's highly unusual in how specific it is. But in that respect, the Title VII decision is so important because it, the word, these words, these highly specific words, will mean exactly what they say and not more and not less. I, I thought Gorsuch's opinion was refreshing uh, in, its, in its honesty.
1: Fred, Justice Alito had a really strong Response to the majority decision in this case, Um, and he painted a picture of a future, which is kind of is is really kind of hard for us to put our arms around. I mean, among among other things, he wrote that a woman who has been victimized by sexual assault or abuse, if she sees a man, because we're now because of this decision. You're going to have intermingling in in uh, changing rooms and gyms, restrooms, whatever, and that a woman who's been the victim of sexual abuse sees a naked man come into the her space, uh, she's going to have a flashback that's going to have severe emotional psychological consequences for her. He talked about what this means in terms of religious freedom and the right of a religious nonprofit organization or a church to refuse. To hire people whose values, sexual values, don't m- mirror the. Ch- I mean, Alito has a very dark view of where this is going to send us as a society.
3: <laughs> sure. Right. So dissent can play various roles. Uh, sometimes the goal of a dissent is to narrow the majority opinion. and to say, well, look, it's actually not that big of a deal. This is very, very narrow. Um, you know, I, you know, and just sort of, you know, I agree on much, but you know, I disagree on this very small thing. Uh, nothing to see here, right? Uh, but then the other, another approach to a dissent is quite the opposite, which is the sky is falling. Uh, this is horrible. Um, and a, 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 a sky is falling dissent can serve a few functions. It can serve the function of kind of um, uh, bringing, bringing the public on board to knowing that there are justices who share their view, uh, but it also can be an, a, a call to, um, to the legislature um, as well, or a call perhaps to the future. Um, if you think that there's going to be a different point um, it's sometime down the line, um, where someone else uh, might have a different point of view and might kind of you know fix it so to speak, um, yeah. But but you know, no, no question, Justice Alito's uh, dissent is in the second category, right? I mean, Justice his majority opinion, when it comes, he does It's much shorter, right? It's 32 pages compared to I think 70 pages by Justice Alito, um, and part of that is he says, look, we're just deciding this issue that's in front of us. We're not we're not going to go down. At oral argument, they went down the parade of horribles. But in his majority opinion, he says, look, we're not going to do any of that. Right? We're going to decide this case that's in front of us about these individuals who, uh, who alleged that they were fired on account of their sexual orientation or their gender uh, expression. That's all we're going to do. Um, and, and so you know we left those other questions to another day. One thing Justice Alito did do, though, also, right, he, he, uh, he put together an appendix. Of all the other laws that might come, that, that might be interpreted this way, um, and so I imagine that there are a number of civil rights lawyers out there who will just kind of pick that up and say, "Oh, well, here we go. We have our list. Um, so we'll uh, we'll see where it goes."
1: <laughs> uh, let's do this. Let's get a final break of the show out of the way, and uh, then look. Let's look at some other matters that have an impact on the court and on the federal uh, system of justice. You're listening to Political Rewind. We're uh, talking about the Supreme Court on Political Rewind today and on the two very important decisions that were handed down last week. One on DACA, which is going to give some hope uh, here in Georgia to the 20-plus thousand young people who are either covered by the program or applying for the program, as Chuck Cook is Uh, Told us, and we talk about Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, where the justices ruled that um, individuals uh, who are LGBTQ are yes protected by the Civil Rights Act of 1964, cannot be fired for discriminatory uh, reasons. Amy Steigerwald, though, you expressed interest. We got just a little time left. As long as we're talking about the federal judicial system, you're concerned about what you saw unfold with the firing this weekend of the uh, uh, U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. Give us a quick, we're running out of time, but give us a quick take on what, what, what concerns you about this.
0: So there were a couple of things that happened here which were rather odd. The first is late on Friday night, the Attorney General announces that the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York is going to resign and that he is going to have another U.S. attorney from New Jersey act as the acting U.S. attorney. And then he's going to nominate someone to fill this position permanently. And that person that he wants to nominate is actually the current chair of the Securities and Election Commission. The attorney, the U.S. attorney, Berman, then releases a statement later Friday night saying, "Um, this is news to me, and in fact, I am not resigning or staying from my post, and I am going to stay in here to protect the investigations that are happening, which immediately raised a number of red flags to a lot of people because for him to be removed, the president would have to remove him. So then we see Saturday, a second statement is released by the attorney general, Stipulating that the pres that he has asked the president to remove the U.S. attorney, and that the president has agreed, the president then later in the day, when asked um, at a press gaggle, says that he knows very little about it and did what the attorney general told him. <laughs> and part of the where this becomes an issue is number one that this was number one became an issue at all. Right, it is very rare to have a sitting U.S. attorney publicly rebuke the attorney general and and basically suggests he was lying, uh, number one. But number two, that it raises questions of, well, why is he being removed from his post? And what makes that even more complicated is that there's not any indication that there are issues with his performance. And also, he was offered to become either the head of the civil division at DOJ or something else, which suggests that they really like him. So again, it raises questions of what's happening.
1: We should point out, uh, Chuck Cook, that uh, Berman uh, had led prosecutions of some real Trump insiders, including Michael Cohen, and now is in the middle of an investigation of Rudolph Giuliani, the president's current uh, lawyer, which is also what raised questions about how this all came together.
2: I I think it would be extraordinarily naive to not to believe that the ongoing investigation of Giuliani is not hooked directly to the request for Berman's resignation uh... and his ultimate termination uh... what they didn't i don't i'm not sure they realized this but uh... while the administration has nominated someone to take that position uh... he cannot take that position uh... until congress actually acts on it and several republicans have said including lindsey graham is we will not be considering a new u.s attorney for the southern district of new york which leaves his deputy in charge who is uh... had an extraordinary reputation uh, for going uh, after um, crooks, criminals, and bad politicians. Um, this may end up backfiring on, on uh, Attorney General Barr.
1: All right. Uh, Fred Smith, if you don't mind, I want to change the subject with you with a couple of minutes we have left because we have another really important uh, decision that we're going to see by the end of June come down. Um, the uh, case of... Uh, June Medical Services versus Russo. This is the first abortion decision that comes out of the Trump Supre- uh, Supreme Court with two Trump justices now in place. We don't have a lot of time for it, but tell us what the implications of this decision could be.
3: Sure, right? So uh, at some point over the next um, few weeks, probably by the end of June, but possibly into July, that sometimes occasionally does happen, um, we're going to see uh, an opinion that really kind of lets us know what the scope of Roe versus Wade is at this point. Um, And this is based on an earlier case um, out of Texas, uh, where uh, based on a number of what they call admitting privileges, provisions, and surgical procedure requirements, um, it left many parts of Texas without any abortion clinics The Supreme Court uh, concluded that that was a violation of the right to privacy and the right to uh, reproductive autonomy. We're now just a few years later, um, but the makeup of the court has changed. You have a virtually identical law out of Louisiana. um, And uh, this might paint the path forward for states that want to restrict reproductive autonomy in the future. Um, So it may be that sort of the Georgia kind of law of saying, you know, the six weeks law and that sort of thing. that that might not be the way to do it, um, and this particular case, if they rule with Louisiana, kind of paint the way forward for states that um, that want to um, to eliminate all um, all all abortion in their state.
1: Amy, the all- the basic case here is. The basic case here is that Louisiana passed a law which says that if you have an abortion Mm -hmm. clinic, you have to have medical admitting uh, privileges at a hospital, which is which the plaintiffs would argue is an undue burden.
0: Yes, that's exactly right. And what makes this case particularly notable is that the court ruled, as Fred was talking about, on exactly the same issue in Whole Women's Health and struck down the provision. Now, just a few years later, the court takes the case, which is the exact same, suggesting that it wants to overturn its own standing precedent, right? And to do so in a really short amount of time, which in some ways gets to, I think it was a point that Fred brought up earlier, about the legitimacy of the court, about the fact that as people are operating, they need to have stability in the law, right? We need to take actions based upon what we think the law is and keep that going. And so this is in and of itself sort of concerning to a lot of people of what other types of cases might also be brought up in short term. Um, And I should note that the court will be handing down decisions in approximately three minutes. So that could be one of the cases that gets handed down. There's also some religious liberty cases. Um, And so there's a lot to be looking for to see what's going to happen.
1: Uh, Meanwhile, and we're almost out of time, Chuck Cook, uh, the new Georgia abortion law still uh, will make its way through the court system. Uh, The the law that would virtually outlaw abortion in the state of Georgia and uh, any case that the court decides about abortion in the next couple of weeks will uh, certainly be something that will be looked at carefully in terms of where they're likely to go if Georgia or other states who have similar laws end up in the Supreme Court.
2: Yeah, I guess we just don't have enough controversial issues to talk about. We need a Supreme Court
1: decision on abortion. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We are completely out of time uh, for today's show. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this uh, panel. You guys, thank you for a really smart conversation about uh, the Supreme Court right now. Uh, Fred Smith, come back. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Amy Steigerwald and Chuck Cook, you, you know we always love having you with us today. Uh, that's it for us. We're back again tomorrow. As I said, we're going to talk about the hate crimes bill, which is causing no end of controversy downtown at the state capitol. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nigut. Take care and please stay healthy.